Need one more reason why your Safeway store is just better? How about free Cuisinart Classic Cutlery or Elite Flatware? That's right. For every $10 you spend, earn a free stamp saver you can redeem for Cuisinart items. Once you've collected between 30 and 60 stamps, you could start shopping for a variety of Cuisinart Cutlery or Flatware available at the in-store display. Present your items and stamp saver at checkout. It's simple. Spend $10, get your free stamp saver. Start collecting. Safeway, it's just better. You're listening to Holistic Living, brought to you by East West Healing and Performance. And now, here are your hosts, Josh and Jeannie Rubin. What up, everyone? This is Josh and Jeannie Rubin. I think Jeannie's on the other line right now. Are you there, Jeannie? I'm here. Can you hear me? Already. We can hear you. This is Holistic Living and from Wellness Weight Loss, Pain Elimination, and Relaxation. But, of course, this year we've been having Ray Pete on every month. Um, love to say thank you to him, of course, and um, keep growing on that. And I guess before we introduce Ray and get him on the on the line, we wanted to say a couple things um, about ourselves and about Ray. And this is 100% from our mouth and has nothing to do with what Ray said or anything because He's a super humble guy, and he's really said nothing but answer our questions and say yes to doing the shows. Uh, first thing is check out our website at eastwesthealing.com. Tons of free resources. It's a resource site, but we do work with clients nutritionally all over the world, as far away as Switzerland and Israel, using the phone to help people with thyroid problems, GI problems, hormonal imbalances, adrenal gland issues, fatigue, you name it. So give us a call to set up your, your uh, consultation. You can get all that information on our site. As well, keep uh, in tune with our website. It will be changing dramatically in the next three-plus months in regards to the look of it, the layout, what's on it, store, resources, you name it. It's going to be fresh and new. We're really excited about it um, with maybe some cheap downloadable videos to your desktop. Of course, you have to pay for it, but they'll be very inexpensive and educational at the same time. Enough about us. Oh, one more thing. Look us up on Facebook, Josh Rubin, Jeannie Rubin, YouTube, blog, blog talk, check it out. Um, the reason for us really doing this, and Jeannie can chime in, is, is first of all, you know, we're human and we're Americans, so we bastardize everything. I don't care who you are. We bastardize it. What you have to understand is, from my perspective, and this is just my perception, and maybe Jeannie wants to add something, Ray's approach is not an approach. It's a philosophy. It's a science. It's a science on how the body works, uh, how its biochemistry works, its biology works, its physiology works, everything. It's not about an outside-in type of diet, like paleolithic dieting and all these different diets out there um, and vegetarianism. It's really based on the science of how the body works. And unfortunately, you can't argue against that. Now, you can, of course, because it can create fear. It can create um, uh, fear, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, our goal is to, to educate people. It's not to create conflict on Facebook. It's not to create conflict on the show. We want to share what we're learning, and that's really the bottom line. So, you know, if you get pissed, you get two options. Shut us off and go somewhere else, or ease into it and learn just like we did. We're not saying we're know-it-alls. We just want to share the stuff, and that's the bottom line. Um, second thing, it's it's a process. His articles are technical. It's like finding Waldo and piecing things together. 
And don't bastardize it and think just because you eat gelatin, carrots, and broth that you're going to become healthy and lose weight and help your thyroid. Um, or just because you read an article that you know exactly what you're doing. We're always learning and realize that you might need to work with a practitioner or consult with someone uh, in the industry that has studied his stuff or, you know, has worked with him directly for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years because there are people out there besides us. So just realize that. And the third thing is I know that we've been getting a lot more emails and phone calls. So I'm making a huge assumption that Ray has. Now, Ray's a humble person uh, from chatting with him. That's what I feel, not on the show, just off off the show. If you send him an email with 50 questions, he'll probably answer it and never ask for money. Now, he doesn't seem like a guy that's attached to the dollar, but at the same time, he does research. Without his research, we wouldn't have this great information. So what I'm asking people, this has nothing to do with what he brought up. He's never even brought this up. What I'm asking people is if you are emailing him or you email him on a regular basis, that out of the kindness of your heart, you send them a check for a dollar. You send them a check for $5, $100. Whatever you feel um, is worth it, that's really all we're asking. And you can do it anonymously. It's up to you. So that's really all all i got to say about that. Um, I just think it, it will be uh, um, a, a kind thing to do since he takes time out of his, his day once a month to really educate us for free. And he's answering all these emails. Um, so that's, that's really all I ask. Um, Today we're talking about estrogen versus progesterone. Uh, Jeannie, you still there? Um, I don't think she's there. Um, I don't hear her. Um, you can go to Ray Pete's site, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com. He's got tons of articles. He's got books, a lot of great information. Of course, a little technical, but, you know, you got to work for it. Uh, a little bit about Ray. He's got a Ph.D. in biology from the University of Oregon, and he specializes in physiology. you got to love it. He's taught at many different schools, and you can check that out on your site, um, from schools in Mexico, the U.S., Oregon, uh, naturopathic schools. He also does private consulting in regards to nutrition uh, counseling. He mainly started his work uh, with progesterone and related hormones back in 1968. So he's got tons of... Um, applicable knowledge in this realm. That's what we're talking about it today. He's done many papers on physiology and chemistry and physics, done dissertations, um, outlining progesterone and other hormones uh, closely related to it, um, and the list goes on and on and on. Of course, a lot of people know by now that he, he's really big into hormones and regulating the thyroid and using foods that are, are beneficial to the body based on our physiology. So, if you want to learn more about him, check out his website, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com. Tons of articles and books. Let me grab Jeannie and um, Ray, because I think they're on the other line. Just give me a second. We still got to... Um, you there, Jeannie here. Ray? Yes, I'm okay. here. All right, we can hear you now. Welcome. How are we doing, Ray? Uh, very good. Thank you. Great. Thanks for coming back on. I know everyone's excited. We've got, you know... Tons and tons of listeners, so um, let's get to it. We're going to be talking about estrogen and progesterone today, which, of course, is more hormones, and we'll kind of intertwine this all together. It's hard to get specific, but um, I guess it, it seems like you've been studying this for, you know, back since the 1960s. Um, I guess our first question is, what sparked your your interest in the whole estrogen, progesterone um uh, etc. I guess hormonal thing. You know, because you have lots of articles and, and a lot of your books 
um, uh, correlated with that? What kind of got you to go down that, that avenue? Um, it, it really started just as a little kid growing up and noticing things. Uh, whenever I would see a, a medical textbook, I would read that. Uh, they were generally more interesting than novels. And uh, when I worked in the woods, uh, uh, one of the old-timers pointed out that when they wanted a, a pine tree to bear seeds, they would chop it with an axe, and uh, that made it uh, bear fruit. And uh, I heard stories about how stress would bring on uh, puberty prematurely, and uh, those ideas uh, started uh, blending with what I was hearing and seeing from like um, a woman in the 50s who took a shot of estrogen immediately came down with rheumatoid arthritis which uh, got worse with each injection and completely cleared up when she stopped using it and uh, a classmate's mother had a, a shot of estrogen for menopause and within 30 minutes was uh, psychotic and was committed to um, the state institution for several months. And the daughter, the classmate, uh, began using uh, contraceptive shortly after that and died of a stroke. And other young women who were using those first very high estrogen uh, contraceptives were um, being disabled by uh, hemorrhaging and such. And so it was in the culture uh, by the time I decided to go to, to uh, graduate school in biology, but um, my intention was to study uh, brain biology, nerve biology, uh, and that grew out of my um, interest in, in psychology and linguistics. But um, uh, the, um, it turned out that the real science was being done in the endocrinology department rather than in the very ideological uh, nerve biology area. And um, the fact that I had moved from Mexico to Oregon uh, at about the time I started graduate school, I started noticing my own health was changing uh, with the dark, uh, rainy winters in Oregon. And uh, I started hearing stories from girls that came to go to graduate school and would get a cheap basement apartment and would uh, spend all winter with PMS. And uh, uh, so that, uh, even though I hadn't yet started uh, studying endocrinology, I was seeing um, more things that were coalescing into the, uh, the, the interactions of the environment with the hormones. And uh, I had uh, been reading, uh, I taught uh, school, I was assigned a course in, in uh, physics for biology majors, and in reading uh, widely to uh, know what to, how to orient uh, that, I ran across Hans Selye's early work. And uh, yeah. in the 40s, he had already very well characterized the functions of all of the steroid hormones. He wrote a thing called the, the Encyclopedia of Steroid Hormones. And uh, he 
demonstrated that a large dose of estrogen uh, created a shock condition. Uh, it had all of the features of, of shock. And uh, uh, progesterone imitated all of the features of the uh, stress-protecting hormones so that animals didn't need their adrenal glands if they had a steady supply of progesterone or if they were pregnant. Uh, so the, the first reaction from a big dose of, of estrogen was known to be uh, shock-like. And so when I shifted over in graduate school to the uh, endocrine department, uh, my project was reproductive aging just because that happened to be uh, what the university had in the field of of endocrine research, and uh, my thesis advisor had demonstrated that estrogen uh, causes uh, miscarriage, basically infertility, but um, if you give the right dose at any stage of pregnancy, it will cause uh, abortion, and uh, he had demonstrated that uh, vitamin E in large doses would delay uh, age-related uh, infertility. And the, uh, my project was uh, studying the oxidative changes in the uterus that occurred during aging. And I found that uh, the changes of the uterus with aging were the same as those produced by estrogen treatment, but also by uh, a deficiency of vitamin E and also by radiation uh, treatment. And uh, I started seeing that how relevant uh, Hans Selye's work was uh, showing the stress shock imitating effect of estrogen. Uh, and that, in fact, the uh, any kind of shock or stress has estrogenic effects, so you can make an animal go into estrus by uh, irradiating it, uh, not just its its head or ovaries, but any part of the body. Uh, something is produced that has an estrogenic effect. If you put a plastic bag over a rat's head, uh, it goes into estrus. Uh, suffocation activates the so-called estrogen receptors and uh, will uh, actually increase the production of estrogen and the sensitivity to estrogen. And even without estrogen, uh, those uh, stress situations will imitate the functions of estrogen. Interesting. You know, a, lo a lot of people probably have, and some people haven't, read about Hans Healy, and he was someone back in the day that kind of, I would say, if I could be incorrect or correct, coined the term stress and developed the um, general adaptation syndrome. Um, now, when we talk about estrogen, I guess we, we'll, we'll get into the whole radiation thing, and we can talk about um, where it comes from, but, you know, I guess I want your take on this because so many people, because of synthetic estrogens and our environment with estrogens and the stress reaction with estrogen, um, I think a lot of people make the misconception that it's essentially bad. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, essentially, you know, it's really not um, a female hormone. Um, 
because men and women both have it, correct? But also, we actually need it to survive. It's it's a problem when it becomes more of an excess that it's a problem. Um, yeah, it's really the essential masculinizing hormone. Uh, the females can have it um, at the crucial uh, developmental stage, but they have a lot of a protein called alpha-fetoprotein that inactivates estrogen. So um, at, at that stage, estrogen will uh, create a male uh, f- functioning organism uh, while it won't uh, affect the, the healthy female uh, fetus or infant uh, because the the female is simply protected against estrogen by that special protein. Mm-hmm. So its its uh, basic early function is as a masculine hormone, and um, the, the um, estrogen industry really is is where the idea came from that it's a female hormone. It it was identified in the ovary, uh, but um, the the main ovarian hormone, which is the feminizing hormone is progesterone, and uh, men have quite a bit of of progesterone, but women, uh, probably the women, the reason women live longer than men is that they are able to produce much more uh, progesterone than men, uh, since men uh, produce it mainly in their adrenal glands. So I think for everyone listening that's Super important to hear that, you know, you know, and, and Ray can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, when it comes to estrogen and progesterone, there's no such thing as a male hormone or female hormone because we both have them. It's how they're labeled based on maybe whoever the research, whoever is doing them, and they both play a huge role in how our physiology works, how our hormonal system works. So it's it's really not that we we you know men have this and women have that, we both have them, and we actually need them. It's one one becomes very efficient or excessive in a sense that it creates an imbalance. So I think that's a that's an important part. And remember that men and women, women um, um, produce them. It's not just a, a female thing. Um, yeah, it, it's um, an excitatory uh, right. transmitter, and uh, its effect in females is uh, the main effects are to um, cause the pituitary to produce prolactin, um, mm-hmm. to cause cause the breasts to uh, develop, uh, um, produce uh, more more tubules and uh, keep growing, where progesterone stops the growth and differentiates them, and to cause the uterus to um, expand greatly in preparation for pregnancy. Uh, but those effects, uh, there's a great surge of uh, estrogen right around the time of ovulation that lasts for about 12 hours, and that releases histamine in many tissues that uh, activates uh, a great surge of cell division. Uh, both histamine and serotonin are released by estrogen. And um, pregnancy... Uh, requires that only in the sense uh, that the uh, the uterus is activated and and made sensitive to um, the contact of the fertilized 
ovum, um, and that preparatory uh, activation is what estrogen is needed for. But you can substitute many other irritants. You can uh, cause implantation to happen just with um, uh, histamine in the absence of estrogen. So estrogen isn't really essential for reproduction by the female uh, in that sense that you can uh, substitute other things. So in regards to estrogen and progesterone, you could have already mentioned this, but um, beside the menstrual cycle and fertility, you know, we talk about these hormones, and I know you talk about estrogen being excitatory, and I do want to talk about histamine and prolactin and all these other hormones because I think it's important for people to understand them as well as serotonin, um, which is your newest newsletter, which is fabulous, by the way. Um, but what other role do these things play in our lives beside um, um, the menstrual cycle, or I should say women's menstrual cycle? I mean, you talk about how estrogen regulates blood sugar, right? Um, yeah, the, um, it, it excites... Um uh, if you have too much of it, it will uh, cause es- cause insulin to be over-secreted and uh, can lower uh, blood sugar that way. But um, it, even though um, it doesn't need an estrogen receptor to activate a cell, uh, just about every cell in the body contains estrogen receptors, and they right. tend to, to be increased by stress. Uh, but the, um, uh, there are other hormones that can imitate uh, estrogen's excitatory effects on the uterus and breast, for example. Um, the pituitary is uh, the source of many excitatory hormones. And so uh, in great stress, you get estrogenic influences from uh, even the, uh, the ACTH uh, prolactin, uh, FSH and so on in the pituitary, these act on on many tissues in the same way that estrogen does. Uh, the thyroid stimulating hormone itself has some factors, some effects very similar to estrogens. Right. Uh, so the, I guess I kind of. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, going a little bit off topic, and we can come back. Um, you're talking about estrogen and progesterones. You know, there's so many people getting tested for these, and now there's so many new ways because you hear all these people saying, well, you know, blood is inaccurate because in 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 blood, you know, estrogen and progesterone are bound to proteins like albumin and sex hormone binding globulin. But in saliva, they're not, so saliva is more accurate. Now, you know, I, I go back and forth. I keep bouncing back and forth. And then I know there's a lot of people out there that don't know what to do, and it, it's hard because... You know, you see these people that are suffering, they go to their doctor, they do a blood lab, everything's fine, and then they go to a saliva lab with someone and they see that, you know, something's deficient, like progesterone, and they have their estrogen dominant. You know, can you give us your kind of your, your philosophy or thoughts on, uh, A, which which one you feel is a little more accurate and um, why we see this, why we see this difference? Um, one of the problems with lab tests is that... Uh, each lab tends to have its own standard, and uh, there are practically no studies in which uh, healthy people have been sought out uh, for uh, blood tests to uh, establish the normal. 
they usually use people who are sick with something else uh, to establish the normal for a, a given uh, blood uh, test result. Uh, so uh, it's it's really uh, kind of irrational to pay much attention to the what they call normal, uh, unless you have someone really healthy that you want to uh, consider as as your model. Um, but the idea of um, protein-bound hormones versus free hormones, um, if you try to dissolve estrogen or progesterone, especially in water, uh, you can hardly dissolve progesterone in oil. It's uh, very hard to dissolve. It it does bind nicely to albumin and and several other kinds of protein. Uh, but uh, one of the assumptions is that what you're measuring in the saliva is free in some sense, uh, but it, uh, they simply are not uh, significantly soluble in water. So what is it bound to when you're measuring it? Uh, the tests in, uh, done in the lab that are called uh, free uh, progesterone or free estrogen are really done by dialysis, which means that the hormone which is bound to a protein is able to pass through a membrane, which is a, usually a protein membrane, and is picked up on the other side by something which also is not in the, the watery phase, uh, an antibody, for example, or other protein. So. Uh, Freedom is purely a metaphysical idea. Everything is is uh, moving along in on the microscopic level a, a solid phase. Uh, so there's no real meaning to um, uh, outside of the laboratory uh, the, this distinction. So the saliva, if, if, if the hormones are associated with something, but it just isn't well defined what they're associated with. And uh, several people have done tests. Uh, they've attached uh, the hormone covalently to albumin so that it can't possibly get loose. So it's absolutely a protein-bound uh, hormone. And they find that it works. It goes right into the cell. Uh, albumin has no trouble getting into the cytoplasm into the mitochondrion, into the nucleus, taking its hormone with it. And uh, even they've even attached hormones to the surface of red blood cells. And uh, uh, that way they can tell whether the cell is sensing it at the surface or whether it has to uh, travel into the cell on its carrier protein. But uh, the whole idea that uh, a cell a hormone has to be free from a protein to get into the cell uh, it derives from the idea that there's a barrier at the surface of the cell. It, it's really a distinction between a proteinaceous, oil-loving system, which is the cell, and the relatively wetter, uh, less oil-loving uh, uh, external fluids and bloodstream. So, I guess if I heard you correctly, and I could be wrong, that 
you know, when it comes to a lab, it, it's really, it's not that one or the other is, is better, but, it, well, it's more accurate, but in your eyes, the the blood test would be more accurate when it comes to the hormones? Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's um, a very good uh, base of information, even though uh, they, their definition of what might be normal uh, can okay. can be hard to interpret, but still you have the uh, a big uh, base of information about uh, how the measurements are made, and uh, people vary tremendously in the amount of saliva they produce, and even in the chemical composition and protein content of the saliva. Uh, depending on what's causing you to salivate, the the protein content of the saliva is variable, and and also the hormone content. Okay, so it's really that blood tests are accurate. The problem is we have so many norms. So the the problem is people might, you know, have all this symptomatology, but whoever they do the lab with, they're, they're coming back within the norms. So they're being seen as okay. The problem is uh, what the norms are based off of. Um, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, when you look at, at the functional outcomes of um, manipulating the steroids, as they've done in in vitro fertilization and uh, mm-hmm. fertility clinics, uh, they see that uh, the results in humans are almost exactly the same as had been established for about 50 years in animals, uh, that fertility requires from 50 to 100 times as much progesterone as estrogen. And uh, that goes back to the the fact that the estrogen creates stress, miscarriage, and abortion. And uh, progesterone is really the progestational hormone. Uh, it really antagonizes the miscarriage-producing effect of estrogen. And so the more you have, the better it is for pregnancy. And the person who is fertile is also uh, resistant to stress in general and shock and so on. Okay. I think that's that's kind of somewhere I want to go right now as far as discussing estrogen and its role in stress and how that all kind of comes together because even speaking in you know, uh, talk, speaking about fertility, infertility and all these clinics that have popped up and how much more infertility we're seeing with people and miscarriages and whatnot. And again, estrogen's role in stress and how that all kind of comes together because I think it's a huge problem and we're seeing such a huge, whether it's an estrogen dominance, dominance or a progesterone deficiency, kind of what are some of the environmental components that are contributing to this because when people think stress, they think emotional or this or that, but it's really more looking out around the environment to see what's creating this imbalance in women because, I, I mean, I know I'm probably not the only one that's seen uh, yeah, any, this anything, huge imbalance. Anything stressful in the environment uh, tends to increase estrogen. Uh, mm-hmm. This Research goes back uh, to about 1940. Uh, uh, the Biscons uh, showed that malnutrition, uh, after the, after the uh, Second World War, they tested it on humans, but they had been testing it on rats, uh, showing that malnutrition and other stresses would increase the estrogen, primarily in their studies, 
uh, malnutrition caused the liver to be unable to destroy estrogen, which normally 100% of the estrogen that gets to the liver is prepared for excretion uh, by the kidneys or into the bile. And um, if the liver is underactive because of, uh, for example, a protein or vitamin B deficiency or a thyroid deficiency, uh, 100% of the estrogen reaching the liver can pass right through it uh, in back into the bloodstream. And that uh, recirculating estrogen uh, then uh, turns on the adrenal stress hormones directly by acting on the adrenal cortex and by blocking the ability of the thyroid gland to secrete the thyroid hormone, which is needed by the liver to uh, uh, inactivate estrogen. Uh, so uh, uh, a protein deficiency or a B vitamin deficiency is one of the things that can uh, turn on absolute estrogen uh, control and infertility. And uh, thyroid used to be in the 1940s and, and before was recognized as the basic fertility drug. Uh, and as progesterone came to be understood, it was seen that thyroid is needed to turn cholesterol into progesterone uh, to maintain a healthy pregnancy. Um, and increasingly, one of the environmental factors that uh, impairs liver function uh, increases estrogen activity and inhibits thyroid function is the unsaturated oil, polyunsaturated so-called essential fatty acids. Uh, these are all anti-thyroid and pro-estrogen and anti-progesterone. Uh, and uh, some French researchers who... Um, had been hearing the propaganda about fish oil being good for the brain, uh, decided that they would demonstrate that fetuses are smarter uh, when the mother is getting a fish oil supplement uh, by doing a, a sound and response uh, uh, test on the uh, woman's abdomen, uh, getting the fetus reaction to a sound. And uh, they found that the women... Um, uh, who were getting the fish oil supplement, uh, the fetuses had retarded learning reactions. And when the babies were born, they found that they're, not only were they smaller overall, but their brains were smaller. And uh, if they had been paying attention to the animal research in the preceding 50 years, they would have seen that this is very predictable, that um, polyunsaturated fatty acids by increasing estrogen, lowering thyroid and progesterone, retard the development of the brain of the fetus. Wow. So, any stress alone, obviously, like you said, can mimic the, um, the estrogen reaction, but um, you're saying that foods in itself can actually, like foods that are high in unsaturated fats or fish oils, can actually mimic that reaction, which can downregulate the thyroid. Um, as well as, um, what's the word I'm looking for, not back up the liver, but create liver toxicity problems, um, um, as well as 
you know, gut issues and inflammation and, and things like that, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the intestine is um, a, a very important factor because the liver excretes part of the estrogen through the kidneys by making it water-soluble. But okay. part of it, which isn't that water-soluble, uh, goes into the bile and is excreted with the feces, assuming everything is working right. But mm-hmm. if if the wrong bacteria are present and the bowel is sluggish, which always happens in, in hypothyroidism, uh, mm-hmm. that estrogen tends to be reabsorbed, uh, uh, adding stress to the liver and uh, raising the systemic estrogen level. So uh, sometimes just an antibiotic will drastically and immediately lower your estrogen and uh, stress hormones and increase the progesterone uh, just by uh, uh, limiting that reabsorption from the the intestine. And uh, that's what got me interested in the raw carrot effect. Uh, Right. You you see the same effect, lower estrogen and, and cortisol and higher progesterone within about three days of eating a raw carrot every day. So everyone that's listening, he talked about this last show, he uses just a one raw carrot to help prevent reabsorption of this estrogen or toxins uh, in the intestine. So he uses the food uh, as a source of almost like charcoal in a sense um, to help prevent toxicity in the liver. Um, yeah, as well as absorbing the estrogen like charcoal, it, it reduces the uh, absorption of endotoxin and, right. uh, and serotonin. Uh, the, the intestine yeah. is uh, a constant source of, of stress from endotoxin according to how irritated it is and how poorly digested the starch and fiber are and so on. And once it gets irritated, then it... it can produce massive amounts of serotonin that that uh, disturb the whole system. Right. Now, we're talking about estrogen, but there's other hormones that are correlated with it. So maybe if we could touch upon, kind of rewind a little, and, and um, uh, talk about, you know, prolactin and what it can do to the body and, and their correlation maybe with, you know, osteoporosis and cortisol and adrenaline and, and even histamine, because we, we're talking about them. I think it's important for people to know it's, it's not just estrogen, it's it's how it can actually um, cause a hormonal cascade of all these other hormones, including serotonin. Uh, yeah, the brain, uh, many people have been taught that uh, mast cells or um, uh, uh, basophils are the only cells that produce histamine, but any cell in the body seems to be able to produce it. Uh, cancer mm-hmm. cells can produce it. Um, uh, brain cells, there's a network in the lower part of the brain that uh, specializes in histamine signaling uh, to the rest of the brain, and it seems to be a a stress-organizing influence. And um, uh, serotonin is the other general uh, stress-signaling system in the brain. Uh, When anything goes wrong, uh, your brain activates the uh, the histamine and serotonin system. And prolactin is uh, one of the stress-reacting hormones, uh, ACTH and uh, thyroid-stimulating hormone or others. 
but the um, prolactin uh, can be uh, used as an indicator of of um, many bad conditions. It tends to increase steadily with aging in both men and women. Mm-hmm. And uh, the normal range for uh, prolactin about 30 years ago uh, was lowered because they saw that uh, people with with the, um, I forget the units, but the standard number, the top had been uh, 20, but they started seeing that uh, that was really, the top number was increased because of the large number of women who were using birth control pills, and uh, there was an epidemic of prolactin-secreting pituitary tumors uh, resulting from the contraceptive estrogen exposure. And so 30 years ago, the healthy normal range uh, for uh, prolactin was uh, set back to uh, 2 to 12. And uh, with with age, uh, that's a healthy person will uh, rise in old age, maybe 8 or 10 or something like that. But uh, just a few years ago, the top number was uh, raised in some labs to 25 or 30 because uh, the average person is now in a, a stressed, hyperprolactinemic condition. Uh, so if, if you don't feel reassured if your uh, prolactin is, is only 18 or 20 on the test because uh, everything is, is under stress when it's that high. It's been known for many years that uh, prolactin is uh, a major factor in bone loss. Uh, uh, A long-time editor of the yearbook of endocrinology in uh, one of I think it might have been the very last uh, volume he edited, uh, he said it's interesting that uh, prolactin causes osteoporosis, that estrogen increases prolactin, but people are being told that estrogen will prevent osteoporosis. And he said, what's going on? And that was his last year as the editor of that book. Um, And it's um, men develop osteoporosis progressively uh, with age and with increasing prolactin. Uh, so it, uh, men also have a, a tendency for the estrogen to creep up with, with age, pushing the prolactin and stress hormones up. So it isn't uh, strictly a, a female thing, but uh, when progesterone falls at uh, the, the first missed period uh, around menopause, uh, that's when bone loss uh, really picks up, and uh, prolactin becomes active under the unopposed influence of estrogen. Right. That was kind of my next question, the correlation between that, because you read a lot out there. Like, I know I studied Dr. John Lee a lot and Dr. McCormick, and they talk a lot about that, how prolactin is increased with estrogen production, because a lot of people don't know that estrogen and progesterone actually play a part in osteoclast and osteoblast you know, uh, production in regards to bone kind of building up and bone loss um, um, and prolactin yeah, as well, don't you? 
Go ahead. Sorry. In in the textbook we used in my endocrinology course, uh, Constance Martin pointed out that uh, people had been uh, looking for an effect of estrogen on the bones uh, in various animals and humans, but at that time, uh, 1970, there had been no evidence that estrogen increased uh, bone calcium retention, although it did increase the soft tissue calcification. That was very well established in animal research by uh, the late 1960s. But uh, the first uh, model for uh, estrogen's effect on the bone uh, they tried was the beagle dog, and in them, estrogen uh, caused many problems, including uh, bone loss. But they found that rats were a good model. It turns out that uh, cortisol also increases bone density in rats. Uh, their endocrine systems are very different because they live at night and are very short-lived. Uh, um, it, it just turned out that uh, rats were a, a good model for selling estrogen as a, a way to prevent bone loss, but the effect they could see that estrogen was immediately doing was reducing osteoclast activity. Therefore, they said it stops bone turnover. If you stop breaking down the bone, that's what you need to slow uh, the um, the bone loss. Uh, and uh, that was that was the whole basis. Um, interestingly, uh, the um, animal research was the whole basis for selling estrogen for preventing bone loss. But human research was the basis for getting FDA approval for DES and other estrogens in the first place. Um, because animal research had shown estrogen to be almost across the board uh, toxic and carcinogenic. Uh, so uh, they can use clinical reports in humans which are very subjective uh, when they want to uh, sell a product. Uh, but if they um, can find an animal model where they don't have any data in humans, they'll use the animal model. So it's important to look uh, what the salesmen are referring to. Is it a, a clinical or an animal model and how relevant and, and how valid are they? Right. Yep. Yep. Um, Ray's got a lot of good stuff out there, guys, as well as Dr. John Lee. And there's another gentleman named Dr. McCormick who did a radio show on osteoporosis, so you can read more about that. Um, why don't we talk about, we'll talk a little bit more about estrogen, and then I want to talk about progesterone because we're getting carried over with estrogen, which is important, but maybe talk about, um, you know, because a lot of people that are listening to practitioners, but a lot of lay people. So some of the stuff goes over their head. You know, what, Kind of explain, because I know you talk about one of your books, there's kind of four ways you can be estrogen dominant. And maybe talk about some of the the symptoms, per se, like you talk about puffy skin um, and um, uh, hypothyroidism and things like that. Maybe talk more about the some of the symptoms that people might see if they are estrogen dominant or progesterone deficient. Um, since it's excitatory, it um, can 
temporarily increase alertness, it acts on the same enzymes that cocaine acts on to increase the adrenaline action in the brain and uh, increases verbal activity so that women can talk twice as fast as men under the influence of estrogen. And and that's sold as a cognitive virtue, except that that uh, carried on for a, a long time is excitotoxic to the nerves and causes uh, loss of, of nerve cell function. Um, and the, the, um, the more acute effects of um, estrogen dominance in the brain uh, can include chorea, uh, uh, sort of uh, uncontrolled, unexpected movements of the arms and legs and such, uh, and uh, epilepsy or seizures are um, promoted by estrogen. Uh, water retention uh, is um, really the first action of estrogen on the cell in exciting it uh, causes it to take up water. Uh, anything that, if you block the oxygen delivery to a cell, it'll take up water too. Uh, so the excitation uh, moves the cell's requirements uh, to a level that can't be sustained so the oxygen becomes deficient. It takes up water and uh, shifts its uh, pH and electrical charge and, and uh that same uh, shift of, of uh, water into the cell makes the walls of the blood vessels leaky to water. And uh, so the water uh, shifts, uh, letting sodium and water both go into the tissues, causing the feet to swell up while you're standing up or uh, during the night your face will uh, share the water burden. But uh, the estrogen... Uh, that immediate waterlogging effect can be compensated by the uh, adrenal, uh, the the cortex, uh, and the renin angiotensin uh, uh, aldosterone effect, uh, which is to try to compensate for that uh, leakiness by uh, increasing the uh, sodium retention in the kidney. At first. Uh, sodium falls in estrogen dominance as it uh, goes out of the bloodstream into the tissue, but then activating this blood pressure regulating system, uh, you can shift from low blood pressure and swollen feet to um, uh, high blood pressure and uh, uh, all of the stress-related uh, um, cortisol-dominant syndrome uh, with um, uh, even at an extreme, you can get uh, uh, gangrene uh, constriction of the uh, blood vessels of the extremities, and the uh, the calcification of soft tissues that the old endocrine textbooks used to mention. Um, that was another thing that Hans Selye investigated uh, in great depth. He called it uh, calciphylaxis and calcergy, uh, in which the excited uh, blood vessels first uh, constrict and load up on uh, calcium, uh, 
uh, estrogen releasing histamine and serotonin precedes that, but calcification and uh, uh, then uh, these injured areas tend to load up with iron uh, in in most cases, and the iron uh, increases the uh, breakdown free radical production in these tissues. So it can lead to such things as gangrene of, of the fingers and toes and scleroderma hardening of, of the skin in various areas that are stressed. And I've seen people recover in just a couple of weeks from scleroderma when they stopped using an estrogen supplement. Yeah. And a key to remember, I want to speak for Ray, you know, because I understand a lot of his stuff, but of course a lot of his stuff is just over my head too, but, you know, there's many ways you can be quote-unquote estrogen dominant. You know, your body can have difficulty detoxing it in the liver. It could be excess because of stress or synthetic, you know, um, prescriptions you're taking. It could be from your body oversynthesizing progesterone because of a stress, or you could just be progesterone deficient. So I think it's person-dependent, wouldn't you say, or is it always the same? Oh, um, it's always different. Um, Okay, yeah. If if you keep those different factors in in mind, it's possible to figure it out uh, because the same, it's a balance between uh, quick emergency stress reactions and then long-term decompensation right. of the of the reactions and and progesterone and thyroid are the things that give you the basic long-term protection. Right, and I think listeners need to hear that you know, just cuz you're not taking a synthetic, or you might be, which is important to research because I find most people are taking stuff they know nothing about. But we both men and women have estrogen, so you can still have these effects. Men can in um you know, so this can be just physiological as well. Um, so it's not just from taking something. Um, we talked well, a lot about estrogen. Go ahead, Jeannie. I'm sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say in regards to that as far as how people become estrogen dominant, we've, talked, we've touched on a few different factors, but when you just mentioned, Josh, is that in, in a stress response and in relation to the hormonal pathway, um, We've talked so much about estrogen, but how do we become, again, so estrogen dominant and so progesterone deficiency? And I think that's a huge point. In a stress reaction, the body is going to almost bypass the production of progesterone or use that for the production of cortisol in order to maintain or be able to um, uh, respond, in a sense. It's, it's, I guess under stress, it's not important that we procreate or that we... Um, go to the bathroom, whatever the case may be, or digest our foods or whatever it is, the more important thing is is that we have enough cortisol on hand to keep the brain working and everything else, our main organs functioning. So I think, you know, when it comes to progesterone, what is the role that progesterone plays Um, with estrogen? I mean, they they clearly work together. Yeah, yeah, the um, stress will, if you just look at the protein that they called the estrogen receptor and the progesterone receptor. Uh, each one acts outside of that system, but those are are useful places to to focus your attention. Stress activates the estrogen receptor, 
and estrogen activates and maintains the estrogen receptor in most systems. But once the estrogen is acting, uh, that turns on the the cell's uh, production of the pro- progesterone receptor that binds progesterone. And when progesterone is available and uh, fills that, that protein uh, receptor, that destroys the estrogen receptor. So progesterone is um, an anti-estrogen in a very absolute sense. Uh, It knocks out the protein that keeps it in the cell. It knocks out the um, uh, sulfatase and glucuronidase enzymes that allow it to condense in the cell. And it activates positively the enzymes that eliminate uh, estrogen from the cell and uh, um, inhibits aromatase, uh, which makes new estrogen and so on. So uh, there are seven or eight uh, specific mechanisms by which progesterone uh, neutralizes and destroys and eliminates estrogen. Uh, so uh, many people have, have wanted to say that it it synergizes with estrogen, but it, it doesn't really. It, it destroys estrogen in a very <laughs> thorough manner. Uh, but estrogen, uh, if your body can respond, if it has thyroid, vitamin A, and and cholesterol, which are the materials needed to convert cholesterol to progesterone, mm-hmm. uh, given an estrogen stimulation, your body will make a massive amount of progesterone, uh, get rid of the estrogen, and go on uh, to uh, differentiate the functioning, for example, of the breast and the uterus for um, lactation and pregnancy. And the um, uh, progesterone uh, counters the effect on all of the uh, peripheral effects. For example, estrogen activates the adrenal cortex to produce uh, aldosterone and cortisol. And progesterone not only uh, counteracts that effect in the adrenal gland, but even if you're um, injected with aldosterone and cortisol, if you have adequate progesterone, the peripheral effects of those hormones are blocked. Uh, Progesterone will serve in place of cortisol or aldosterone if you don't have either of those because the adrenals are removed. So it will uh, let the kidneys uh, function properly and uh, uh, take care of most inflammations and so on. But if you have an excess of aldosterone and and cortisol, progesterone also prevents the toxic effects of those hormones the way it protects against toxic effects of estrogen. So progesterone fills in for a deficiency of many hormones and protects against an excess of those same hormones. Right, right. And you, and you talk about, too, what what role does it play with magnesium? Because you talk about uh, a lot in your book, um, uh, what's it called? Like the fourth molecular progesterone book that you've written that's, that's great and everyone should get it. What's, can you elaborate on its role with magnesium? Um, well, partly. Uh, uh, Jerry Aikawa was a magnesium specialist who, who wrote uh, at least one good book 
on magnesium. He showed that uh, the cell which needs magnesium for many functions, but for example, uh, ATP is stabilized in the presence of magnesium. And if magnesium is deficient, you're energy deficient, uh, and uh, that contributes to cell swelling. Um, if, if the mast cell is magnesium deficient, it can't retain histamine and serotonin and other inflammatory things. And, and so uh, whatever holds magnesium inside the cell prevents inflammation and allows differentiation and, and good function. And Jerry Aikawa showed that thyroid, uh, the T3 especially, is what is needed by the cell to retain magnesium. And it, it uh, I, I think the uh, production of ATP and carbon dioxide uh, is the mechanism by which the thyroid uh, regulates the retention of magnesium. And the, the, uh, the reduction of uh, histamine, serotonin, and other inflammatory things by uh, by magnesium and its association with uh, high energy uh, cell metabolism and production of carbon dioxide uh, antagonize the improper actions of calcium. Uh, when the cell is inflamed or de-energized in the absence of thyroid and magnesium, it takes up uh, calcium. And the reason it takes it up is partly because the calcium should be held in suspension in the blood as an ion combined with carbon dioxide or bicarbonate. Uh, if you lose uh, the bicarbonate, then the calcium uh, goes into the cell and keeps it in an excited, inflamed state. Uh, and uh, so the the proper uh, condition of the calcium goes with the availability of, of magnesium, and the magnesium keeps the the platelet as well as the mast cell from degranulating and uh, putting out serotonin and other inflammatory and clot-promoting agents. Right. Guys, the name of his book is Progesterone and Orthomolecular Medicine, and I have it in front of me, but it's a great book. It looks like a small book. But it's packed, packed with great info. Um, mine's basically, I should have just dipped it in red ink, but it's, it's a great book. And it talks about the benefits of progesterone and how, you know, it works to um, basically um, restrain blood clotting and help balance blood sugar and help with kidney function and downregulate histamine. And, you know, so it's, it's got a lot of different functions in the body. So it's definitely worth reading whether you're in the industry um, or not. If you have progesterone in your body, you should be reading it. That's my opinion on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, our, our last chat, we talked a lot about the thyroid. Can you, and you kind of mentioned a little bit um, in how estrogen in itself, I, I, I guess we could say, downregulates the thyroid. And we could say that progesterone would stimulate the thyroid. But you talked about how we also need vitamin A and cholesterol to produce progesterone. Um, without medications, um, how one might do that with, with nutrition. And I'm not looking for, you know, of course, we don't have to have the plan, just some basic recommendations. 
Um, the um, the factor of polyunsaturated fat that in the last uh, 50 years this this has been probably the main thing interfering with thyroid function, and you can block that very quickly with coconut oil uh, because of the quick availability of the short and medium chain saturated fats. Uh, they compete against the uh, polyunsaturated fats for uh, produ- pr- producing oxygen uh, in the mitochondria. Uh, the short uh, chain saturated fats are anti-inflammatory and have many indirect uh, helpful functions, but they provide energy so quickly that they block uh, many of the actions of the uh, polyunsaturated fats. And the um, thyroid is, and the mitochondrial energy production are constantly under a breaking influence of the polyunsaturated fats. Uh, when you're under stress, you free uh, fatty acids to circulate. So every time you're under stress, your thyroid function is blocked a little bit and your cellular ability to use sugar is blocked a little bit. Uh, coconut oil gives you a a temporary reprieve while it's uh, being digested for a couple hours after eating it. Uh, It interferes with that uh, blocking system of the polyunsaturated fats. Um, Sugar does the same thing, only it doesn't have the same competitive power against the fatty acids. Uh, And the um, when when you're um, having enough sugar and saturated fatty acids to interrupt the the anti-metabolic effect of the uh, polyunsaturated fats, your blood sugar is stable and more available to be used uh, and stored in the, the liver. And the liver senses the availability of fuel, especially glucose, uh, to govern your thyroid function. And uh, the way it does that is local rather than acting through your pituitary or thyroid gland. Uh, Your thyroid gland puts out about three parts of thyroxine for every part of active T3 hormone. And your liver, when it senses that you have enough fuel as, as glucose or short fatty acids, will allow the um, thyroxine to be turned into the active T3 and will provide um, a a very high and adequate uh, uh, thyroid hormone. Uh, The the thyroid gland itself directly contributes about 30% of of the active stuff. So uh, it takes a little while for a change in the thyroid gland to affect the metabolism where the liver is instantly uh, monitoring the amount of fuel and adjusting accordingly. So as long as your liver has uh, enough glucose stored as glycogen uh, to keep your blood sugar steady for eight hours or so, uh, your metabolic rate will stay the same. Uh, As soon as your liver runs out of glucose, if you're not getting a steady supply from your, your food, then your uh, T3 production falls 
immediately by about 60 or 70 percent. And uh, then that your your um, thyroid and pituitary uh, sense those changes and will adjust uh, uh, slightly later than your, your liver. So the one reason I like Ray's philosophy, guys, is it's super unconventional, but it's really how the body works. And the thing about the thyroid is if you're eating, if you take away the foods that are creating inflammation and in, in creating that stress response that he's talked about, like the cortisol adrenaline, which downregulate the thyroid, and you eat the foods that allow for the conversion of thyroid and allow for the liver to work properly, and a lot of them, of course, are anti-inflammatory proteins. You know, maybe we'll do some shows on that. But eating the right types of vegetables, obviously you've seen on his site, he advocates sugar. So it's a huge part, along with everything else, the coconut oil, in regards to stimulating the thyroid and pushing you, you know, um, into that anti-inflammatory state. So it can be done with food. It doesn't always have to be herbs, plant-based supplements, and things like that. So uh, I think that's an important thing to take away. Um I think we got a couple more questions, and then we'll just kind of maybe take some calls if we have them, and then kind of wrap it up. Um, I actually kind of want to ask or touch on or have Ray kind of explain. You know, there's a lot of women out there who are, you know, upon menopause went to the doctor and got put on different HRT, um, you know, hormone therapy or women who are on the pill. Um, can you kind of... Talk about that a little bit and what some alternative methods may be for women who want to protect themselves against these estrogens or increased estrogens or even, um, you know, young women on the pill who are altering their hormonal balances through being on the pill. What, yeah, what would you... Uh, uh, the um, consumption of, of the menopausal hormones decreased drastically after the 2002 Women's Health Initiative results yes. came out yes. uh, showing that estrogen causes strokes and heart attacks and dementia and cancer, uh, the things that they were selling it to prevent. But uh, the industry always comes back with uh, propaganda pieces in all the medical journals, and and so a lot of women are are again being indoctrinated to take it. The uh, short-term benefit is that it's very much like cocaine it peps you up but uh, if, if a person wants to withdraw from it uh, there's there's often a, a time of depression and low energy and while adjusting the the thyroid and progesterone and diet functions uh, sometimes it just helps to supplement coffee to uh, keep the, the mental energy up and the hot flashes uh, are really, a, it's a, a complex uh, set of reactions, but uh, I experienced hot flashes uh, when I uh, traveled to Mexico and, and was exerting too much, um, too fast for, for not being adapted to the altitude. And uh, every time I would stop, and, and rest, I would have a, a hot flash, and uh, uh, that started me uh, looking around. And I, I noticed young women who were working very hard were suffering hot flashes in their twenties, uh, 
it isn't just a menopausal uh, thing, but it's it's a, a stress, uh, uh, adrenaline, cortisol, um, very complex set of reactions. And the simplest, safest way to um, respond to them is, uh, for example, if you have night sweats uh, and hot flushes during the night, having a lot of carbohydrate at bedtime will normally be enough to stop them. And having a snack of a glass of orange juice and milk several times through the day will usually stop them. Uh, some salty food uh, to uh, steady the blood sugar and adrenaline uh, will um, very often be all it takes to uh, stop the hot flashing. No, Ray, I just want to clarify something because, you know, a lot of people listen and they hear what you're saying, and I know what you're saying, but I, I know some people just hear high-carbohydrate meals. And, you know, people are always looking for a way to push someone down, and people can run with that and go, well, you know, Ray Pete advocates eating a high-carbohydrate meal. I want to clarify that my perception of what you're saying is you're talking more of the right types of carbohydrates in regards to your tropical fruits, your root vegetables, milk and sugar, orange juice, you're not talking about, you know, pots and pop tarts and things like that. Um, no, the, there are many problems with the starchy foods, so I'm yes. strongly yes. against all of the all of yes. the grainy starches in particular. The um, If you're going to have to eat starch uh, just to get by, it should be cooked for maybe 40 minutes as a minimum and then eaten with uh, cream, butter, or coconut oil, uh, because the starch grains uh, very easily find their way into the bloodstream, uh, other body fluids, uh, where they, in the bloodstream, they clog small arterioles and uh, uh, cause systemic <laughs> injury uh, chronically. Uh, they've demonstrated that in mice as well as people. Um, yeah. So, uh, cooking the starch much more than normal and eating it with quite a bit of fat is protective. But still, uh, the people keep sending me studies showing that uh, in a study of five weeks or so, uh, they argue that there's a great benefit from feeding a, a high starch diet rather than a high sugar diet. But when you look at the long range effects. If they uh, continued, you'd uh, see a, a super obese, stressed, older animal if it lived on that same high starch diet, uh, where the, the sugar uh, helps to regulate the adrenal and the thyroid hormones and to moderate the insulin and other uh, adaptive hormones. Uh, and I don't advocate eating, although I think a person should have at least 80 to 100 grams of good protein every day, and more is okay. But it's important not to eat too much protein by itself. Uh, I had the experience of uh, almost fainting after eating uh, just eggs for breakfast when I was in a hurry in a, a cold, cold climate. Uh, and I heard that... Uh, it was fairly common for women on a diet if they just ate eggs 
to, to faint about an hour later uh, because the egg protein is very high quality and stimulates insulin secretion, which lowers the blood sugar, and that calls for a very intense cortisol reaction, and uh, it, it often can produce a, a fainting reaction, but it always produces the, the insulin cortisol reaction, which has uh, chronic cumulative effects, aging your brain cells and immune system and so on. So right. yeah. it, it's very important yeah. to to not burn the protein for uh, energy. You want the protein to be used as protein, not as a substitute for sugar and fat. So having yeah, it with sugar diet. and fat. Like, right, yeah, just like the paleo diet. But, well, you know, I'd love to do a show on macro and micronutrients. Um, you know, I just wanted to clarify that because I know some people could easily take that out of context. Not what, that's not what he's talking about. The one thing we found that works great with us and a lot of our clients um, when it comes to regulating body temperature and, and down-regulating adrenaline, especially at bed, is dairy and sugar. Um, it's it, With gelatin as well, it's worked great to help down-regulate adrenaline and help with people's sleep patterns. Um, and, of course, there's many other pieces of the puzzle, but it's one thing we found that's, that's definitely helped. Um, so, you know, but we'll, we'll do a show if, if at some point, I guess, if, if you don't mind, and we'll, we can talk about about macro and micronutrients. Um, so I guess when it comes to HRT, what do you, you know, I know you do recommend taking progesterone, and there's many types of progesterone. Um, can you maybe elaborate a little bit on, you know, I know you like yours that's suspended in vitamin E, and then a lot of people say, well, you know, I do these drops or I take the cream. You know, what's the major difference between these? Well, for about 40 years I've been telling people that I don't <clears throat> don't believe in hormone replacement therapy um, right. because I've seen so many people, um, dementia, epilepsy, uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, other types of arthritis, uh, and totally disabling diseases, I've seen recover overnight from one dose of progesterone. And uh, uh, most of these people, I've seen them uh, 10, 20, 30 years later, and they still hadn't had a recurrence of, of that uh, terrible problem. So uh, I think of, of progesterone, if it doesn't work, Within a week, something else should be uh, fixed. Um, and so I advocate the diet first, uh, right. thyroid thyroid next, and then you probably, if your cholesterol is okay and you're eating right and your thyroid is working, then you don't need progesterone. But right. for a, for an emergency, uh, the, the things I do recommend it for are epilepsy, other movement disorders, um, uh, MS, uh, dementia, uh, of all types of, of uh, mental impairments, uh, and uh, arthritis of all sorts, um, uh, any, any very acute well, migraine. It'll usually stop a migraine if you have... Uh, 
some backup of thyroid function. It'll stop a migraine sometimes in two minutes uh, with a big dose. Uh, right. So for any disabling uh, acute thing, uh, for example, there are studies now being done on uh, brain trauma uh, patients. If you can get the progesterone to them in the first day, uh, they practically all recover where before they would have practically all died. Right. So I think it's important for the listeners because, you know, Ray has his thoughts on gelatin and sugar and progesterone and estrogen and stress and all these foods. The thing is, it's all individualized. Not every single person needs progesterone. There's only certain times you need it or, you know, try the nutrition first, which is nutrition is really specific. And like I said, we work with people based on our interpretations of his work. Um, try that first to make sure to see if you can get the thyroid working and, and down-regulate stress. And then, you know, last ditch, try uh, the progesterone. But it can be used, like you said, for specific disorders and insomnia to, to definitely help people. Um, I, you know, it's we've gone about an hour and 20 minutes. I don't really have any more questions, of course, you know, I, I, we could sit here for hours and hours and hours and, and talk about this stuff. But like I said, guys, Ray's got tons of articles on his website on estrogen and progesterone. His book on progesterone is great. Um, From PMS to Menopause is probably one of my favorite books that he's written. It's a great book you can look into. Um, Jeannie, do you have any more questions for Ray? Um, I don't at this time, no. I think we've got a okay. lot of great information. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot to for people to kind of um, digest, and there's a lot more to it than um, even what we covered. Um, you know, so definitely check out his website. Do you have anything else you might want to add, Ray? Oh, you had um, sent a question about Barberg's theory of cancer, and uh, that's something yeah. that lots, yeah. lots of people are starting to talk about again after he was ridiculed for by most doctors in the United States for about 30 or 40 years. People are now starting to talk about him again, but they're invariably misinterpreting him. They haven't read what he really said, and uh, they're they're thinking that uh, you should uh, go on a sugar-free diet or something that had really nothing to do with what Warburg was talking about. Uh, what he said was that uh, the respiratory apparatus, the mitochondrion, is impaired and causes cancer. And uh, with the impaired mitochondrion, the cell uh, can't turn off its um, use of glucose. It, it didn't, he didn't say that it, it uh, stops its use of, of uh, body tissues. The cancer goes on burning the body's protein and fat stores uh, at a tremendous rate. And if you give it sugar, you can slow down the destruction of the body. Um, but the, what he emphasized was that the um, sugar is being converted to lactic acid even uh, when there's a, a good supply of it in the body. And uh, what you want to do is prevent the destruction of the body by the tumor, and lactic acid happens to turn on all of the stress uh, reactions, inflammatory mediators, uh, promoting uh, 
the spread of cancer and the and the survival of cancer by promoting the conversion of the body into fuel for the cancer. Uh, so right, the, the sugar-free diet that a lot of people are now blaming on Barberg uh, doesn't really fit with what he did. Right, and he's referring to war. I can never pronounce it. I think I think it's spelled W A R B U R G S theory on cancer. Warburg's theory on cancer. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's about our body's incorrect use of sugar, in a sense. And and when you talk about CO two and all these different things in oxygen, um, I guess we could start saying it's more estrogen even has more of an effect on that because of how it pulls. Um, oxygen from the tissues and and um, you know even from and, our organs. Yeah, the the instantaneous effect of either estrogen or unsaturated fatty acids is to imitate the Bar- Barberg uh, effect of uh, lacking the Pasteur effect, which is to for oxygen to turn off lactic acid uh, in the presence of high estrogen and high polyunsaturated fats uh, will make lactic acid and not be able to use the uh, uh, energy oxidatively. And correct me if I'm wrong, that he's actually saying, or you're saying, it's actually the lack of sugar that's creating the excess estrogen, or it's the poofs that are getting sugar into the cell that's, that's creating the cancer, and it's not too much sugar, it's actually not enough. Yeah, the um, the cancer uh, is eating everything at a high rate, including right. uh, wasting the sugar by turning it to lactic acid, which burdens the whole system, and that, uh, uh, that turns on the stress system. Right. It's all great stuff, guys. Like I said, his, his approach and theory is definitely against the grain, but it works and it makes sense. It's the way I explain it to people, I don't know, this is what I say is you read the stuff, you gotta find a little bit in this article and that article, kinda like where's Waldo and intertwine it together. Um and if you can do that you'll have a great philosophy. Um so um anything else you want to add or any other questions, Jeannie? I know I'm pretty much um I think I've got all my questions we, answered and I'm sure Yeah, I think we touched on everything. Yeah. So um, unless you have anything else to add, Ray, we really appreciate you once again coming on. Um, We've had tons of listeners, thousands of listeners, and people are really really taking in what you say and honestly appreciating it. Um, So um, everyone, you know, says thank you for coming out each month and and sharing your your knowledge. Okay. Yeah, I've been getting a lot of emails, but uh, I won't even be able to book orders for a few weeks because we've got to get caught up. Right. (laughs) Well, um, everyone definitely appreciates that. Um, And I gave everyone a little uh, introduction speech at the beginning in regards to that um, because everyone does value their time and I don't want people to take advantage of your time. Um, Okay. So I gave gave them a little speech. But we definitely appreciate it. And if you don't have anything to add, we'd like to say thanks and uh, have a wonderful day. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.
show, guys. Once again, Ray Pete. Check out his website, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T-E. Uh, lots of great articles and books. Um, if you're starting out, books are probably easier to read than the articles, but just grab one and just start reading. Just jump in. It's not going to make sense, but just keep reading and reading the articles and connect the dots. And It takes years. This stuff is, is technical, but it's just great stuff. Um, didn't take callers. Didn't really feel like taking callers. You know, as you always see, it kind of frustrates me, so I just said, hey, I'm not going to take them. I'd rather just listen to Ray talk and educate us all. Um, if you've got questions, like I said, you can contact Ray. Please, if you even send him a dollar, I don't care what it is, 10, 100, 500, whatever you want to send him, please send him something, not just to send it to him, but if, if you're asking him questions via email, and I know a lot of you have, he'll just answer them. You know, he's a great guy. So please, um, you know, compensate him. It's not that your... that'll answer, but it takes a lot of time sometimes to answer all these questions. So. Oh, I know. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, check back. We'll have our next show posted soon in regards to the month of April um, in regards to ratio. Next week, we're actually going to be doing a show Tuesday at 1 o'clock Pacific Coast time. Um, uh, a gentleman named Matt Stone, he's got a website and blog out there. You can look him up on Facebook as well. Um, he contacted us and wanted to do a show, the three of us, more like a conversation-type show in regards to you know, um, health, weight loss, thyroid, liver, you know, all that all that stuff out there and, and what, what's worked and what hasn't worked in regards to Ray Pete's philosophy in, in Broda Barnes because he's been using it for years. So it's going to be a conversational show, um, I guess more layman's terms of Ray's philosophies. You know, what are anti-inflammatory proteins and why use gelatin and why we're advocating sugar and why is it important to use temperature and pulse. So check it out. Obviously, it's a free show, and it'll just be the three of us chatting in. So, and we'll be taking callers. So, um, that's all I have to say. I think I produce more estrogen because I talk fast. That's my correlation from today's show. <laughs> all right, I'm done. Thanks, guys, for joining us. All right, we'll see you guys later. Need one more reason why your Safeway store is just better? How about free Cuisinart Classic Cutlery or Elite Flatware? That's right. For every $10 you spend, earn a free stamp saver you can redeem for Cuisinart items. Once you've collected between 30 and 60 stamps, you could start shopping for a variety of Cuisinart Cutlery or Flatware available at the in-store display. Present your items and stamp saver at checkout. It's simple. Spend $10, get your free stamp saver. Start collecting. Safeway, it's just better.